<laughs> He's a tough crowd. But you know, um, no matter whether you participated in worship with us uh, just once or twice, or uh, if you've been a faithful member of this church for over 20 years, you know that we are a singing church, right? And that's a good thing, because authentic, uh, historic Christianity is a singing faith, and God's people are a singing people. It's one of the, the chief things that followers of Jesus are renowned for, both down through the ages and, and now really all around the world. And uh, while the portion of the service given to music has varied from time to time and from place to place, most churches, a uh, study shows, devote about one-third of their gathered time to singing. And that's a lot. And, and most churches invest a considerable amount of time and money and effort and energy into the musical side of the church. But have you ever stopped and asked yourself why we sing? Have you ever uh, wondered what purpose it fulfills or, uh, or, or whether it really matters whether we devote the allotted portion of music in the worship service to congregational singing or to watching other people sing? And, and those are all important questions and ones that we're going to look at today uh, through the next psalm in our series, which is Psalm 13. A psalm uh, written by David that talks about the difficulties of life that he faced uh, sometimes almost on a daily basis. And as you're reading through it, it's a song that starts out uh, in kind of a very somber key of darkness and doubt, but that ends in a vision of light and of love and in a Savior who puts a song of revival into his heart and, Lord willing, into ours too before we leave today. So we're going to look together at Psalm 13. I hope you're following along in your own Bibles in your hands because it's like I said before, more important to see it in front of you than on the screen, but uh, it will be the screen. Uh, so we're looking at Psalm 13. The superscription reads, To the choir master, a psalm of David. And he writes, How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long must I take counsel in my soul and have sorrow in my heart all the day? How long shall my enemy be exalted over me? Consider Answer me. Oh, Lord, my God, light up my eyes, lest I sleep the sleep of death. Lest my enemies say I have prevailed over him. Lest my foes rejoice because I am shaken. But I have trusted in your steadfast love. My heart shall rejoice in your salvation. I will sing to the Lord because he has dealt bountifully with me. And you know, have you ever noticed how music has kind of a way of, of lifting the moods of people no matter how down they might get. Did you notice that? And you know, that's really true for the Christian as well as for the non-Christian. Just, just about everybody likes to sing around the house or in the car or maybe even in the shower. Uh, but you know, the place where we ought most to abound in singing is in corporate worship because it helps us to praise and to pray and to proclaim the goodness of God and the glory of his salvation in the gospel of Jesus Christ. You know, one commentator has said singing is just one of the many ways the congregation can participate in worship, however it may be the most impacting. And then he continued, as a pastor, I hate to admit it, but people don't often remember sermons and lectures. What they do remember are the simple statements, 
and the clear phrases that are the hallmark of great songs. Another commentator put it like this. He said, chances are as good as the spoken sermon is, it won't be the sermon points that people are humming on their way home from church. And you know, that's not just a modern concept. In speaking on congregational singing, the great prince of preachers, C.H. Purgeon, said, personal praise is sweet unto God, but congregational praise has a multiplicity of sweetness in it. And Martin Luther, standing at the dawn of the Protestant Reformation with all of its emphasis on education and uh, correct doctrine and congregational restructuring, said, next to theology, I give the first and highest honor to music. In fact, he saw it as a necessary aspect of every true worship service. You know, uh, throughout history, church music has experienced uh, different levels of congregational involvement. For example, uh, prior to Luther and the Reformation movement back in the, the Middle Ages, Western church gatherings were largely silent. And that's because the, the common folks were forbidden, of course, to read Scripture aloud or to sing during corporate worship. And the congregation's role in the church became increasingly minimized by uh, the dictates of popes in Rome, uh, dictates that were carried out by the priests of the local parishes, uh, to, in their words, protect the integrity of the service from the profanity of the involvement of the common man. So you and I would just be out of luck, right? Uh, until people actually became little more than spectators in the service. And that happened because the church as a whole lost sight of the fact that the basic structural elements for meeting between God and His people don't change over time. They're eternal. They're universal. Right? God convenes the meeting. He calls a people to Himself, and then God's people respond. They respond by collectively remembering and anticipating and celebrating the movement of God's sovereign hand in the story of redemption. That, that's the, the core and the fundamental practice of corporate worship found in both the Old and the New Testament. As you see, Israel had the exodus to remember and the promised land to anticipate. Uh, the first century church could retell the story of the Last Supper and could recall the sacrifice of the cross, but they could also anticipate the promise of a new heaven and a new earth in the kingdom of God. And the natural climax to all of those acts of remembering and anticipating is rejoicing. It's rejoicing. Uh, and it's in that kind of celebratory worship context that music becomes like a bridge. It, it becomes like a link connecting together the shared experiences of individual members of the congregation in a memorable way, but at the same time delivering biblical content from the head to the heart. Music can do that. Uh, and that happens when congregational singing to honor God honors Scripture first. When congregational singing to God honors Scripture first. Uh, you know, music methods and styles come and go, but the message of God never changes. That's why using songs with theologically true lyrics is essential because as we engage in singing the psalms and hymns and spiritual songs of the church, they become an indelible part of our lives. I know that's true for me. And in thinking about this, St. Augustine said, no one is able to sing things worthy of God unless he has received them from him. Wherefore, when we have looked thoroughly everywhere and searched high and low, we shall find no better songs for that purpose 
than the Psalms of David, which the Holy Spirit made and spoke through him. And when we sing them, we're certain that God puts the words in our mouth as if he himself were singing to us and through us to exalt his glory. And so we see that today. We see that he inspired, God inspired David to sing in Psalm 13, 6. He said, I will sing to the Lord because he has dealt bountifully with me. God dealt bountifully with anybody here, right? You see, David had started out back in verse 2 by being very inwardly focused. He said, if you remember, how long must I take counsel in my soul and have sorrow in my heart all the day? See, he was taking counsel. He was taking guidance from his own heart and his own soul. And that, brothers and sisters, is the worst possible mistake you can make. Because even though the Disney film industry would have us believe that you should always just follow your heart, you know what? The Bible affirms exactly the opposite. I was just talking to somebody about this yesterday. Jeremiah 17, 9 says, The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? See, he was saying we will never find understanding and true meaning and genuine worship by looking within. That's not where spiritual revival comes from. All there is... There is the spiral of self-doubt and the endless treadmill of a defeated life when what we really need comes from outside ourselves and outside our own ideas and outside our own efforts. As one author has written, revival awaits our soul when we lift our hearts and our voices, and, and I would add to that our attention in grateful praise and thanksgiving to God in joyous song. And, and you know, you, you can really see that all throughout the history of the people of God. And I want to take a look at a couple of them just real quickly, like the revival uh, through song that really came at the rebuilding of the temple after the Israelites returned from exile, uh, returned only to find the city of Jerusalem in ruins. And we find it in uh, Ezra chapter 3 that tells us, when the builders laid the foundation of the temple of the Lord, the priests in their vestments came forward with trumpets, and the Levites, the son of Ashbah, with cymbals, to praise the Lord according to the directions of David, king of Israel. And they sang responsively, singing and giving thanks to the Lord, singing, for he is good. His steadfast love endures forever toward Israel. And all the people shouted with a great shout when they praised the Lord because the foundation of the house of the Lord was laid. Did you notice there the people didn't wait till the building was done to praise the Lord? Even though laying the foundation was significant, there was still a mountain of work left to do. Years would pass before the temple was finished. This was only the first step. But they stopped anyway and gave thanks to the Lord. And they sang. They sang a united, public, powerful, God-centered song. And when they sang, they sang, He is good, not we are good. And they didn't even sing, We did this with God's help even though that would have been true. But no, instead, they openly gave God all the credit, even in the midst of the devastation of the city. Uh, with just the foundation of the temple rebuilt and just kind of sitting there in the midst of all of this rubble of their former homeland, but still the people said with one voice, God is good. God is good. Now, that's true faith. Because, you know, anybody can praise God when the sun's shining. Anybody can praise God when all the bills are paid. Anybody can praise God when your marriage is strong and your kids are doing well and you just got a good report from the doctor. 
My cholesterol just went down 25 points. Praise God, right? <laughs> right? Anybody can praise God, right? When, those, when the future is bright. But it's something else entirely to praise God when things are far from perfect. Right? And it's great to be able to look at your life and say, you know, it's not all that I might have wished for, but in Jesus Christ it's more than I never could have hoped for because God has been good to me. God's been good to me. And that reminds me of an example, a New Testament example of revival through song, one that took place in the hearts of Paul and Silas when they were locked inside the depths of a Philippian jail. And Acts chapter 16 tells us that. It says, when they, meaning the Philippian mob, had inflicted many blows on them, meaning Paul and Silas, they threw them into prison, ordering the jailers to keep them safely. And having received the order, he put them in the inner prison and fastened their feet in stocks. About midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to the Lord, and the prisoners were listening to them. Suddenly there was a great earthquake, so that the foundations of the prison were shaken, and immediately all the doors were opened and everyone's bonds were unfastened. Now just imagine. Imagine what these two men were going through. Uh, There you are, it's the the middle of the night. You've got no idea whether you're going to be hanged or beheaded or flogged again the next morning and what do you do pray yeah we all we all would pray we would all cry out uh, for help from god but that's not all they did verse 25 said but about midnight paul and silas were praying and what singing singing hymns to god now why in the world were they singing it was midnight they were in pain they were tired They were cut off from their traveling companions. They were in the hands and at the mercy of unscrupulous men. Now, if the text had said that they were just asleep from exhaustion, or if they were crying and pleading with God for help, that we could understand, right? That makes sense. But singing hymns? I mean, let's be honest. If anybody were to say to you or me today, if we're having a really rough day, you know, when you really hit bottom, just sing some hymns to God. You'd probably say, like, gee, thanks. You probably never hit rock bottom, have you? But you know what? Paul and Silas were at the bottom, literally and figuratively, and they sang, and immediately the doors were opened and everyone's bonds were unfastened. And, and, you know, I think that happened both physically and spiritually. I mean, yes, the actual doors of the prison opened, but at the same time, so did the hearts and souls of Paul and Silas, who were not just free bodily, but liberated in the spirit to love and serve the Lord. To love and serve the Lord, which is, is, by the way, exactly what happened to the church as a whole during the revival known as the Protestant Reformation. You know, we're going to be spending a lot of time this afternoon celebrating the Holy Spirit's work through Martin Luther in translating uh, the New Testament into the language of the people, uh, and rightly so, because that was a watershed moment in the life of the church. But we also have uh, Luther to thank for putting congregational singing back into its rightful place in public worship. You know, as I mentioned earlier, prior to uh, Luther, any singing that took place in worship was done by trained singers and by priests and monks, and they did it in Latin, uh, believing that you and me in the congregation didn't need to know what the words meant anyway. But, you know, at the height of the Reformation, Luther, who was not only a theologian and a reformer, you know, he was also a musician and a composer. And he loved to sing, and he did it well. He did it so well that some folks have called him the Nightingale of Wittenberg. And he wrote dozens and dozens of hymns for worship. 
because he believed that music, like people, could be transformed by the power of the gospel to share a higher purpose. It could be transformed by the gospel to share a higher purpose. One of my favorite Luther quotes about music is uh, when he said, Next to the word of God, the noble art of music is the greatest treasure in the world. He said it controls our thoughts, our minds, our hearts, and our spirits. And he said, Our dear fathers and prophets did not desire without reason that music always be used in the churches. Hence, we have so many songs and psalms. And this precious gift has been given to man alone that he might thereby remind himself God has created man for the express purpose of praising and extolling him. That's our purpose. And I like that quote because it points out that the art of music serves the word and not the other way around. Uh, And it's important not to get that twisted up. Otherwise, we might start worshiping music instead of worshiping Christ. Uh, And honestly, that is really one of the major flaws in contemporary worship. And I'll give you just a really quick example. Uh, When Vicki and I and the the kids were back in Pennsylvania earlier this year, we attended a a local church, a great local church, really, with a biblically grounded, uh, reformed pastor, solid theology, great preaching. But in the midst of all of that, they've got this contemporary praise and worship band. And and although I I love that kind of music when I'm driving around in the truck uh, or when I'm on my lawnmower with the headphones on, right, it, it really falls flat in worship. And I'll tell you why. Because that type of music, that style of worship, in large part, is more of a concert than it is a congregational experience. Right? And, and all you have to do uh, is look around at the congregation during the musical portion of a contemporary service, which, which I did just for research. Uh, and yes, admittedly, some people are singing, but even more are just watching. They're just watching. Because despite their best intentions, and and I don't doubt the sincerity of Christian musicians, contemporary music is primarily directed at an audience. That's just obvious. Because otherwise, why do churches put so much emphasis in offering modern music than to attract an audience who admit to having no interest in the great hymns and psalms of the church? And, And just like today's popular secular music, contemporary Christian music CDs and, and music videos are aimed at audiences. Audiences that can range from one small church to millions of viewers. But in genuine worship, in genuine worship, our hymns and our choral numbers and that great solo that Barbara sang are for an audience of one. They're for an audience of one. And that one is the creator of heaven and earth. Now that's not to say that we shouldn't or couldn't personally benefit from hearing sacred music or spiritual songs, we can. Uh, It it can move us to tears. Songs can inject us with courage and we can be drawn closer to God or inspired to action. That's why Victor Hugo said, uh, music expresses that which can not be said but which is impossible to remain silent. You see, sacred music can give a a voice to deep longings or, or help us to calm our soul or revive our hearts to the hope of a new day. But, you know, what we get out of it can't be its primary focus. What we get out of it can't be the primary focus. We have to lift our hearts and our minds to where Christ is and to that new day that we look for at the endless revival that we look for in heaven. That revival we're looking for in heaven. You know, the Apostle John, in his uh, vision of the future, wrote in Revelation chapter 15, he said, And I saw what appeared to be a sea of glass 
mingled with fire, and those who had conquered the beast and its image and the number of its name standing beside the sea of glass with harps of God in their hands. And they sang the song of Moses, the servant of God, and the song of the Lamb, saying, Great and amazing are your deeds, O Lord God Almighty. Just and true are your ways, O King of the nations. And, you know, in many ways, those verses take us right back to the beginning of this message on congregational singing and the fact that it makes sense that there's going to be a lot of singing in heaven, right? If, if there's plenty of singing down here, how much greater will be our desire to sing and to praise God when all of His promises are fulfilled and we're enjoying the fullness of our salvation? Where hundreds of thousands and, and thousands of thousands will join in one accord to sing the praises of the Lord. And, you know, we talked about this in Sunday school. The interesting thing about that particular song in heaven uh, is it's both old and new. It's both the song of Moses and the song of the Lamb. As you know, the, the song of the Lamb is going to be new in heaven, but the song of Moses was well over 1,200 years old by the time John wrote down his prophetic vision. And John says, the dead in Christ go on singing that song of Moses because it's a song of celebration. It's a song of the great victory of the Exodus. It's the birth of Israel as a nation. And it produced a song that became like their national anthem. Just like the song of the Lamb will be for us. Because it's going to be a song of the celebration of the ultimate Exodus. The Exodus of Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God, bringing His chosen people out of bondage to the flesh. And bringing us out of bondage to sin. And bringing us out of bondage to death and to hell. And into the liberty of the kingdom of God. Because you see, what Moses prefigured for the Old Testament people of God, Jesus has completed and perfected for the New Testament people of God. So it's no wonder that both of their songs are going to be the top two on the charts of heaven. And they always will be, because just like all good congregational singing, those songs unite the praise of God and His work of salvation. See, the Old Testament saints will sing the song of the Lamb because their exodus out of Egypt would have meant nothing if Jesus had not led the way out of death. And on the other hand, the New Testament saints are going to sing the song of Moses because God mightily used him to point the way, to lead the people of Israel out of Egypt, to lead them to become a unique people and a light to the nations, to use them to point ahead to the Savior that was to be fulfilled. Because, you know, both the Old and the New Testament plan of God are united, but they're united in Jesus Christ as vital parts of the whole. And that song in heaven proves it. You know, the new is, is going to be with us forever, and that old song is never going to be obsolete. That old, old story. The old will always be the foundation for the new. The old song of Moses and the new song of the Lamb are going to be being enjoyed a hundred billion years from now. And we will appreciate them all the more because we will have enjoyed so much more of what those words mean. But you know, it all starts down here. It starts in the word of David in Psalm 13 when he said, But I have trusted in your steadfast love. My heart will rejoice in your salvation. And you know, that's the second time David has told us that in our journey through the book of Psalms. The first time was back in Psalm 914 when we read, Oh, that I may rejoice and recount all your praises, that in the gates of the daughter of Zion I may rejoice in your salvation. And you know what, in both of those cases, there's a beautiful double meaning because there's a very real sense here in which David is saying to God, I'm going to rejoice in your Jesus. We talked about that before. Don't forget, 
As I said, David wasn't just a shepherd and a warrior and a king. He was a prophet. He was a prophet who, through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, foresaw our ultimate rescue in the person of Christ. And that truth just finds its way into his writing. Because if you remember, when you see that word salvation back in Psalm 9 and today in Psalm 13 and in other places in the Old Testament, you're seeing that Hebrew word Yeshua. Yeshua, which literally means God saves. And it's also the same word, it's the same name given to David's greatest descendant, to our Lord Jesus Christ. The same Savior that Moses exalted in Exodus 15 when he sang, The Lord is my strength and my song. He's become my salvation, my Jesus. This is my God and I'll praise Him. My Father's God and I'll exalt Him. He's the same one to whom you and I will sing in the words of Revelation 5. Worthy is the Lamb who was slain. Worthy is the Lamb to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And to Him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever for all the ages to come as we rejoice in that precious name of God's salvation, even our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen? Would you please stand for our closing Apostles' Creed and for our closing hymn. Brothers and sisters, let's confess together what we believe. I believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended into hell. The third day he rose again from the dead, he ascended into heaven and sitteth at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. From thence he shall come to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the holy Christian church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen.